following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Now, we are doing this series called Here We Stand, and uh, we're, we're celebrating the 500-year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And that is really uh, a, a time when uh, there was this recalibration of uh, the central truths and doctrines in the life of the church. Uh, one of the major players in that whole time was Martin Luther, and we've talked a little bit about him. We're going to play another clip from the Luther movie uh, in a minute. But so far, we're looking at these five, what we call the five solars of the Reformation, uh, five central doctrines that were reaffirmed. They weren't new at the time of the Reformation, but they were brought back front and center in the lives of Christians and in the life of the church. Uh, and so we've looked so far at sola scriptura, scripture alone. Scripture alone is our highest and our primary authority. Uh, we've looked at, last week Mike talked about solus Christus, Christ alone. Christ alone is our salvation. Christ alone is sufficient for salvation. And so this morning, we're going to look at sola gratia, Grace alone. And in many ways, this is the heart of it all, the heart of the gospel. And I want to come and talk a little bit about this door this morning, this door that has appeared on stage for a couple of weeks, and we've kind of mentioned it here and there in passing, but we haven't actually dealt with the door directly. So I want to tell you a little bit about the door and what's going on. Uh, this, This particular door appeared at our church offices the week before the series started, and I didn't plan it, Now, our staff team knew nothing about it, but it just appeared, and someone in our church community who has wanted to remain nameless constructed the door uh, as a recreation of the scene that we'll talk about, this beautifully constructed door, and on the door is a copy of this document that Martin Luther nailed to a church door in Wittenberg, which is called the 95 Theses. By the way, this is different to the, the Heidelberg disputations that my, uh, Mike was talking about last week. So where he was going through those various points, this is, a, this is a different document. This was written a year earlier than those. And so when I finally figured out who made this door, I texted them and thanked them profusely for, for doing this. And uh, I cheekily said to them, it would have been nice to get a copy of the 95 Theses in German uh, because that was the language that Luther spoke. You know, I mean, these are English. And so the next day, I turned up at church, and there was this envelope here. Achtung! <laughs> Her Ruben Munn, Shaw Cook, New Zealand, from the Gutenberg Press in Deutschland, with the copy of the 95 Theses in German. So that was fantastic. And then I texted him and said, thank you so much, now I've got a copy in German. Uh, but actually, now that I come to think of it, I think the 95 Theses might have been written in Latin. So this week, I arrived at work, and there was this envelope at the church door. Special Latin run to indulge her man from the Gutenberg Press in Deutschland. So now I have the English version and the German version and the Latin version. And if any of you would like to come and read any of those, if you speak any of those languages, you are welcome to. So let me me tell you the story of this door. And then we'll watch the video clip. The story goes back, we're back to the 16th century, back to Germany, back to Martin Luther's day. And the story actually begins not with Luther, but with another preacher named John Tetzel. Tetzel was a preacher, he was preaching on behalf of the Pope. So he was commissioned by the Pope. And he went around Germany preaching uh, supposedly Christian message. 
And what he was mainly doing was selling these things called indulgences. You might have heard of them. Indulgences basically were just pieces of paper. And you had to pay for them. You had to put your money in the church coffers. And then you got your bit of paper. You got your indulgence. And the idea was that the indulgences were worth certain spiritual benefits, either for you or for someone else. If you use them for someone else, then what it meant is that your indulgence could take some time off purgatory for that person. So if Aunt Mavis has died, she apparently was in this place called purgatory, which was believed to be this place people went to when they died, where they were kind of spent in a waiting room before actually getting to heaven. It's not particularly biblical, but people believed in it. And so if you bought the indulgence, you could reduce Aunt Mavis's time in purgatory. In fact, if you bought enough indulgences, you could get her out of purgatory altogether. Uh, And one of Tetzel's famous sayings was, when the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. And so you'd put the coin in and you'd be good. Mavis would be good. The other option you had is that you could use the indulgence for yourself. And if you you bought enough indulgences, you you could be returned to a state of absolute innocence before God. And you could have all your sins remitted, you could be completely forgiven, and it would be as if you lived before the fall. Uh, you'd be a total, uh, totally innocent, perfectly pure person before God. And that would just be by buying enough indulgences. And so this is what Tetzel was selling. And he'd, he'd go around these German towns, and people would come out to see him. And he came to a town quite close to Wittenberg, where uh, Luther was living and working. And people from Wittenberg would go out and hear Tetzel preach. And they'd go and buy these indulgences. And many of these people were poor, poor people. These were peasants. And they would give what little money they had to buy these worthless bits of paper, thinking that they'd be getting relatives out of purgatory or remitting their own sins before God. And this is what enraged Luther so much. And this is what led to him writing this document and sticking it on the church door. So have a look at this scene uh, from from the movie Luther. You'll see this character playing John Tetzel. Uh, preaching, and then Luther nailing the theses to the door. Let's watch the screen. So the reason then that Luther stuck this to a church door was just because this was like a bulletin board. And the door had, you saw in the clip, the door had a whole lot of other things on it, a lot of other bits of paper. And this was really a way back back in his day of drawing public attention to what he wanted to say. And he was trying to get a public discussion going and a public debate going about these indulgences and raise questions in the minds of people as to whether this was really a good and healthy practice. So let me read you just a couple of these uh, of the theses from his 95 theses that he wrote so you get the idea of what he was on about. Uh, number 32, those who believe that they can be certain of their salvation because they have indulgence letters will be eternally damned together with their teachers. He didn't really mince his words much, did he? Uh, number 52, it is vain to trust in salvation by indulgence letters, even though the indulgence commissary or even the Pope were to offer his soul as security. So he really didn't have a lot of time for these indulgences, Luther. And it, it's easy, I think, for us to say, well, that was then and this is now, and we don't do anything like that anymore. We know the indulgences were just rubbish And even the Catholic Church has reformed its ways since then. They don't go around selling these things anymore. And we're good Protestants. We know that this was all just silly. And we're we're much more enlightened now. We don't do anything of that. So really, that was then. This is now. That was all just kind of an irrelevant issue. But I want to suggest that 
even though we're not buying and selling indulgences anymore today, the, the principle behind this practice of indulgences is just as prevalent among us, just as prevalent in the church, just as prevalent among Protestants, just as prevalent in our lives. It's just that it's harder to see today. It's not as visible. It's a bit more subtle. It's a bit more deceptive. But let me give you an example. When I'm preaching on a Sunday, very often I'll get to about Saturday and I start doing in my mind this little mental inventory of the week that's just been. And I have a think about what kind of person I've been over the past week. Have a think about what kind of Christian I've been, uh, whether I've really walked with God, uh, how much I've been in Scripture, what kind of husband I've been, what kind of father I've been, what kind of pastor I've been. And if I feel like I've had a pretty good week, if I feel like, yeah, I've been, I've been walking with God, done pretty well, haven't committed any major sins, it's been generally pretty good, then I feel pretty good about getting up here on Sunday and preaching to you. And I feel like God's going to be with me and he's going to empower me and he's going to speak through me. And I feel generally okay about it. If it's been a rubbish week, if I've been far from God and I've messed up and I haven't been a particularly good husband, haven't been a particularly great dad, just haven't been a particularly good Christian this last week, then I get to Saturday and I start feeling this sense of dread. And I feel like, oh, I'm going to be a hypocrite tomorrow. I'm going to be a fraud standing up in front of these. Who do I think I am? With this week that I've had, I just, there's no, I'm completely unworthy to preach. God's not going to be with me. He's not going to bless me. He's not going to empower me. He's not going to speak through me. Now, when I think that way, do you see what I'm doing? I'm basically buying indulgences. That's basically what's happening. I might as well be rocking up to John Tetzel and saying, please, can I have an indulgence or two? Because all I've done really is swapped out the indulgence letter for my own good works or bad works, good deeds or bad deeds. It's just the same thing. It's just I'm using a different kind of currency, but I'm, tr I'm still doing exactly the same kind of thing. I'm still operating my relationship with God based on a points system. Because that's, that's what indulgences were. That's what's behind the whole thing, is there's a, there's a point system. There's a merit and a demerit system going on, supposedly. And so indulgences say there's something you can do. There's something you can buy. There's, something, there's an action. There's a step you can take, and it will lead to certain spiritual rewards. It will lead to certain spiritual blessings, certain spiritual benefits. I'm doing the same thing when I'm wrapping up my week and, and, and letting that affect how I think tomorrow morning's going to go, how Sunday morning's going to go. I'm saying there's something I can do or there's something I cannot do that is going to lead either to spiritual rewards or in my case, I also run a demerit system. There's things that I can do which are going to somehow remove God's blessing, remove God's favor, remove God's power, make God less inclined to answer my prayers. Am I the only one that struggles with this? Anyone else? I think most of you are just too proud to admit it, which is also a sin. That's negative five points for all of you. That's some demerit points going on there. We all do this, right? I mean, we, we all somehow default back to operating as Christians according to a merit and demerit system. I mean, ask yourselves these questions. Why is it that when something goes wrong in our lives, we do a quick little inventory to see if there's anything God might be punishing us for? You do this, don't you? Don't look at me like that. You all do this. You just, there's a little part of you that wonders, is God, could God be possibly punishing me for something? Do a quick little scan back in our minds. Have I done something that might be causing this to happen? We're operating this kind of demerit system that might lead to demerit points. 
Or why do you feel like God's more inclined to answer your prayers when you're a little bit better Christian? And you're reading your Bible and you're praying and you're going to church and you're doing the good things that Christians do. You kind of feel like God's a little bit more likely to answer your prayer when you really need something. We're defaulting back to that point system, to that merit system and that demerit system. And we feel like God relates to us. God sees us. God treats us on the basis of our spiritual performance to a greater or lesser degree. I think this is where most Christians are. And, and what I've learned about this over, over the time that I've been a pastor is most Christians, I think, feel like they're on the negative side of the ledger. You know, like I used to think that mo the big problem in the church was that most Christians were kind of like self-righteous and they thought they were earning their salvation through all of these good deeds they were doing. What I've come to realize is that's a pretty small group. Most people feel like they're on the negative side. They can never do enough. They can never try hard enough. They're a failure. They're in the negatives and they might be trying to do a few things or they might have given up doing a few things and they basically feel like God's disappointed in them. I still remember the day I preached in a church in the States and a young woman came up to me after the service and just simply said to me, I don't feel like there's anything that I can do that will make God pleased with me. I don't feel like there's any way I can do enough to please God. And just that look of, of guilt and, and shame on her face that she just felt like she could never get into this place of being accepted and being right with God that she could never quite do enough. It's like she was on this treadmill. She was trying and she was doing what she could, but it was never enough. She could never quite get there. I think this is where so many Christians live, that we feel like we can never quite do enough to put a smile on God's face and he looks at us with a sense of perpetual disappointment. He's generally angry with us. He generally can't be bothered with us. He's not likely to answer our prayers because we've just fallen too far. And, and we feel this total guilt and shame like we're just not good enough and we're not worthy enough. And I think a lot of Christians are there. That's where they live. That's unfortunately their Christian experience. It's incredibly sad, but it's the reality for so many people. And it's this whole points system, this whole merit and demerit system that we've constructed, which Luther was taking aim at with those 95 theses. That's really what he was getting at because he knew and he saw that this practice of indulgences struck at something that is at the heart of the gospel, that is at the heart of the Christian faith. And it's this doctrine of sola gratia, grace alone. This point system is in absolute contrast to the doctrine of grace. And this is why we need to hear the good news. So I want to read just a couple of verses this morning from Ephesians. If you've got a Bible, flick up into Ephesians chapter 2. Just two verses today, verses that many of you will have heard before, but which beautifully summarize uh, what sola gratia means and, and, and how it applies to our lives. Ephesians 2, verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. So when we come to understand grace, we've got to understand two things. We've got to understand what it is not, and we've got to understand what it is. So firstly, what grace is not, and it's right there in the verse, verse 8, this is not from yourselves. Just underline those three words if you've got a pen. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. And then in verse 9, not by works. And what Paul is saying is this whole system that we have so elaborately constructed, 
this merit and demerit system where we feel like we're earning points or losing points and this affects the way that God sees us. Paul's saying that whole system is absolute rubbish. That whole system is completely bankrupt. It's complete garbage. The very thought that we could do anything to ever earn a single point with God just shows that we don't know how sinful we really are. We've actually lost touch with our own sinfulness. The thought that I would ever be able to stand up here and be worthy of preaching God's Word to you just shows I've not yet come to terms with my own depravity. That's all that shows. Every single Sunday that I stand here, I'm a fraud. Every single Sunday I stand up here, I'm a hypocrite. Every single Sunday, because I have fallen woefully, immeasurably far short of the grace of God, and I'm a hopeless, dirty, rotten sinner. That's who I am, and it's not just me. It's all of us. When we start thinking that we can earn a single little iota of a point with God through doing some good deed, good merit, good act, whatever it might be, we've not yet plumbed the depths of depravity in our own hearts. In fact, the very thought that we, we think we can do something that would contribute that in itself is a sin. It's the sin of pride. It's the sin of self-righteousness. Here's what Luther says about that. The person who believes he can obtain grace by doing what is in him adds sin to sin so that he becomes doubly guilty. Luther's saying the very, the very notion that we've got in our heads that we could earn a point with God is in itself a sin. It's not a merit point. That's a demerit point that's taken us even, even further behind and even if we could earn points with God, this is what Mike was talking about last week, even if, let's say, miracle of miracles, you were somehow able to earn all these points with God and you kept the law perfectly and you kept the scriptures perfectly, even then it wouldn't make a difference because God does not relate to you on the basis of points. Even if you turned up in God's presence after you die and said, God, I've kept the law perfectly, God would say, you've missed the point. It's like turning up to buy milk with Monopoly money. It's absolutely worthless because God has never related to us on the basis of points, not in the Old Testament and not in the New Testament. He just simply doesn't work that way. So even if we somehow, which we couldn't, accumulated points, wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't work anyway. It would be absolutely worthless. And I paint this picture for you because we've got to come to terms with our own sinfulness before we're ready to receive the grace of God. You've got to hear the bad news in order to appreciate the good news. And Luther again says this, Only a man must despair of his ability before he is prepared to receive the grace of Christ. He's saying the only way to get yourself ready to receive God's grace is to completely despair of any chance you've ever got of achieving it. You've got to put aside any notion that we could ever contribute anything to God or improve the way God sees us by our own deeds whatsoever. Only when you get to that point can you really hear the good news the good news of grace. And here it is right in this verse, verse 8 again, for it is by grace you have been saved. That word grace is the word charis, and it simply means gift. It was a common word in, uh, in Paul's day. It wasn't just a Christian word. Uh, it meant gift or goodwill or favor of many kinds, and gift giving was a common practice in the ancient world, just like it is today. People gave gifts all the time. But in the ancient world, in the Greco-Roman world, when people gave gifts to one another, it was usually a very, very calculated thing, that you would only give a gift to someone if you thought at some point they could reciprocate that to you. 
that you'd give a gift in a very calculated way. If that person, maybe you give this gift and then down the track, maybe they could endorse you for something or they could rally to your cause or they could publicly promote you in some way. You'd always be thinking, how is this to my advantage in giving this person a gift? You'd always be doing it. It was always tactical. It was always strategic. It was always in some way to increase your own social standing. So you always gave to someone with a very high expectation of return and reciprocation. And Paul takes this word out of all that context and he uses it to describe the way that God has given us the ultimate gift and he's given it to recipients who are utterly unworthy of it, who who can do absolutely nothing to repay it ever. Now that's a dangerous idea in the first century. You didn't do that. I mean, that would be dishonoring if you did that. That would be foolish to give away gifts so lavishly like that. But that's exactly what God has done. He has given the gift of his grace to those who have no shot ever of repaying it. Completely unworthy. And what is the gift that God has given us? What is this grace that God has bestowed upon us? Often when we think about grace, we think of it like a thing. Do you think of it like a thing? Like a substance. It's like God God has given me this stuff called grace that I need in order to be saved. But when we think about grace, we've got to remember grace is not a thing. Grace is not a substance. It's not a commodity. Grace is a person, and it's the person of Jesus. Jesus is the grace of God. Jesus embodies the grace of God. Jesus is the gift. That's why John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave grace. He gave his only son. Jesus is the extravagant gift of God that God gave us to live the life that we could never live, and then to die the death that we should have died. And when Jesus died, he took upon himself all of our failure, all of our hopelessness, all of our sin, and he took upon himself all of the futile things we do to try and earn points with God, which are also sin in God's eyes, all of our silly self-effort, all of our crazy self-righteousness, all of our attempts and thoughts that we could ever earn our way with God, that's all sin too. Jesus took that upon the cross. Then he took upon the cross himself all of the sins that we commit that we're not even aware of. We think we've got our head around our own sinfulness. We're committing sin all the time. We're not even conscious of. James says, whatever doesn't come from faith is sin. That means we're sinning all the time. We've got only a fraction of a grasp on our own sinfulness. But Christ took it upon himself. He absorbed the whole lot. He absorbed the entirety of our sinfulness. And then here is the beautiful thing of grace. This is what Luther called the wonderful exchange. That Jesus takes all that we are and he gives us all that he is. That's grace. If you don't catch anything else this morning, catch that. What God has done is put everything we are upon Christ and he has given us everything that Jesus is, everything that Jesus has. All the riches of Christ now flow to us. All the benefits of Christ flow to us. All the merits of Christ flow to us and we can't do a single thing to earn it. We can't do a single thing to deserve it. We can't do a single thing to contribute to it. We can just receive it by faith and we'll talk about faith next week. So the benefits of Christ or the life of Jesus becomes our life. The obedience of Christ becomes our obedience. His faithfulness becomes our faithfulness. His righteousness, his right standing with God, that becomes our right standing with God. His death becomes our death. His resurrection becomes our resurrection to new life. 
His ascension becomes our ascension so that as he's sitting now before the Father in heaven at the right hand of God, now we, Paul says, are seated in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. That's where we are positionally before God. And one day, even Christ's future inheritance will be our inheritance. Just as he's going to reign over the new creation, we will be co-heirs and we will reign with him. Everything that he has is ours. And what that means for you in the present is this, that when God the Father looks at you now, in all of your brokenness and all of your sinfulness and all of your failure, as God looks at you now, do you know who he sees? He sees the face of his son, Jesus. Now, he still knows it's you. He knows it's you. And he still sees your sin and all of your brokenness. But as he looks at you, in the way that he relates to you, in the way that he treats you, in the way that he approaches you now, God looks at you and he sees Jesus. And that, I think, is the image we've got to keep in our mind, that we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. And that's how the Father treats us, not according to how good we think we are or even how bad we really are, but purely according to the merit of Jesus Christ. That's why it's got to be sola gratia, right? Because the minute we think, we get this thought back in our mind that maybe I can just contribute something. Maybe Jesus gets us 99% of the way. Maybe grace gets us 99.9% of the way, but there's got to be that 0.1% surely that I can do. Surely I can at least make myself just a little bit more lovable. Surely by my good life and good deeds and church attendance and tithing and whatever, I can just kind of make God's job just a little bit easier, surely, to love me. It's got to be that little bit. When you let that creep in, when you let that little 0.1% creep in, you think you're going to do something to earn the grace of God. You have undermined the cross. You've undermined the gospel. You've undermined grace. It's like you're crucifying Jesus all over again. He's already done it. He's already paid for it. It's grace alone. I know you've heard this before, but let me say it again. It's nothing about what you do. It is all about what Christ has done for you. It is finished. It's finished. Sin is paid for. Your righteousness is in Christ. That's grace alone. You're excited about it, I know. But I tell you this. It's, I think the thing is, like many of us know this, don't we? I mean, this is not new information. This is, in a sense, the basics. But here is the thing I would say for our congregation. It's one thing to know this intellectually, isn't it? It's another thing to really live this out. It's another thing to really live out of the grace of God and let it catch a hold in your heart and really let it change your life. I really believe that if we truly apprehended the incredible grace of God, our lives would be different. Our lives would be changed. I wonder whether part of the reason that we struggle to really live in the grace of God fully is because grace, in a way, doesn't really seem very fair. It's not particularly fair. And we've got, as Kiwis, we've got this innate sense of fairness, haven't we? It's one of the highest values in Kiwi culture, fairness. You know, we're all about equality, equity, parity, fairness. We want fairness. I mean, what, what's the longest running TV show in New Zealand history? Fair go. You know, 40 years on and off, that program's been going. Consumers that are being ripped off, the fair go team comes in. He tries to give them a fair go. And we like that, don't we? We like sitting in our living rooms and watching fair go. We like seeing people get a fair go. Do you know what would happen if you rocked up to God and asked for a fair go? It's not going to be happy times. It's not going to be a happy place that you end up going to. We've got to be very careful asking God for a fair go, 
right? That is not what we want. That is not what any human being wants because if God treated you as your sins deserve, it would not end well for you. If we want fairness, you know, it, it is not going to end well. That, that is not what we need. What we need is grace. It is true, grace is, grace is not fair. Grace and fairness are opposites, but thank God for that because we desperately need not fairness, we need grace. I mean, we're like students who enrolled in a university course and you didn't show up all semester and you didn't do a single assignment and you didn't bother showing up for the exam. And then you get your marks back and it's an A+. Now, that's, that's not fair. That's ludicrous. That's ridiculous. That is not the way the world works. If you did that as a lecturer, you could be fired. That's just outrageous. But welcome to the doctrine of grace. Grace is not just kindness. It's not just niceness. It's not just God being a little bit merciful. Grace is crazy. It is ridiculously good. It is so unfair and lavishly, extravagantly, abundantly beyond anything we deserve. It's an amazing, amazing gift. It's crazy grace. That's what it is. Only when you really realize what we actually deserve can you actually realize just how good the gift is that we've really received. Remember a song that we used to sing in the church I grew up in, Wonderful Grace, that gives what I don't deserve, pays me what Christ has earned, and lets me go free. And that's, that's the beauty of it. That's the paradox of it. That's the scandal of grace. It is scandalous, but it's scandalously good. And I think what we need to do is remind ourselves regularly of just how good God's grace really is. Because so quickly we default back to the point system, don't we? We all sit, out here, sit here this morning, nod our heads. We love God's grace. We're going to walk out there. We're going to go back to the merit system. We're going to go back to the demerit system because it's so entrenched within us. And it's the way that every sphere of life around us seems to operate. You get what you earn and you get out what you put in and so on. But we've got to remind ourselves regularly, grace is not like that. Grace is this pure gift that God gives me. There's nothing I can do to even posture myself to receive that. All I can do is receive it in faith with arms outstretched. It is a pure gift. We've got to remind ourselves of this. Every time we feel like we're defaulting back to the point system, we've got to remind ourselves on our worst days, don't we? On our very worst days, when you wake up in the morning and you kick the cat on the way down the hallway and it's all bad from there, it gets worse from there, and you feel like you're a billion miles away from God and you go back to those old sins, those old habits that you thought you'd put to death and they crop up again and you're irritable and you're not focused and you're in bad headspace and God's just not there and he's not coming through and it's just one of those days you wish would end. On those days, we've got to come back to sola gratia. We've got to remind ourselves, I am clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. God does not treat me according to how good or bad I am, how good or day, bad my day has been, purely according to the merits of his son Jesus. That's it. We've got to remind ourselves because it'll leak out of us otherwise. And we've got to remind ourselves on our best days, right? When things are humming along nicely for you and you really feel like you're making progress as a Christian 
and you really feel like you're growing as a Christian and you're walking with God and you're engaging in these spiritual practices that help you grow and maybe God's using you in some way to bless someone else, to do something to someone else, serve someone in some way and you, and you have the sense that, man, th- things are good. I would say maybe those are the days we're most in danger of letting go of sola gratia because it's those days that little thought starts to creep back into our head. Maybe there is something I can do. Maybe I'm kind of just, you know, making God's job just a little bit easier. Just making it a little bit easier for him. I know it's still about grace. I know it's still about Jesus. But surely I'm making his job just a little bit easier. That is when we've got to come back. It is grace. It is grace. It is grace. Even on our best days, our righteous deeds are like filthy rags in God's sight. It's wonderful to be growing as a Christian. Don't get me wrong. It's a wonderful thing to be faithful toward God. And God calls us to grow. But none of that affects how God sees us, how he relates to us, and how securely he holds us in his arms. That is all because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And we need a reminding of that on our best days as much as our worst days. On my desk in the office, I've got a little cross. That just a little wooden cross sits in the far side of my desk. And I have a little devotional time in my office on the days that I'm there. And I just often look at that cross as I'm reading the Bible or praying or just thinking about God. And some days I pick it up and hold it in my hand. And just recently I found myself holding that little wooden cross and just saying to myself, sola gratia, sola gratia, sola gratia. Grace is all I have. No matter how bad or good yesterday was, no matter how good or bad today is, grace is all I've got. God's grace in Jesus is all I've got. But thank God his grace is so sufficient, so abundant. And so full. And where my sin abounds, God's grace abounds all the more. That's what the Bible teaches us. And so my prayer is that we would each take that point system in whatever form it looks like in your life. We've all got a slightly different one. But whatever that merit and demerit system looks like for you and the way that you've constructed it and the way you think you're living by that system, I pray that we would take that whole system today and just smash it on the altar of God's grace. Just deal to it. Just chuck it away. It is absolutely bankrupt. It, is, it cannot do anything for you. And in fact, it is just doing damage to you by living in that kind of way. Just get rid of that point system once and for all and decide today you will start living not out of a performance mentality, but out of the deep, deep grace of Jesus Christ. Because when we really start drinking from the reservoir of God's grace, it'll transform our lives. It'll change us. And it will lead to more growth in our lives than if we're just living by the point system. May we be people of grace, people of sola gratia, who live out of that place of grace every day of our lives, knowing for sure there is nothing we can ever do to make God love us anymore. Nothing we can do to make him love, him, make him love us less than he does right now because of Jesus. And may we be a church of grace that really rests on the foundation of the grace that has been shown to us in Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, so many of these truths that have been spoken today are ones that many of us have heard many, many times. And yet, Father, we're so keenly aware that for many of us, they've stayed in our heads and they've not yet been poured into our hearts. I want to pray this morning, Father, by your Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes afresh to see and to receive 
the incredible, amazing grace that you have given to us. Lord, we pray that we'd get a fresh glimpse of our own sinfulness, but only so that we could get a fresh glimpse of what an amazing Savior you are, Jesus. Just how much you've rescued us, how much you've freed us, and how much you have have liberated us and forgiven us by your grace. Lord, I pray for any person here this morning who is still living by that point system, maybe just in small little ways, but thinking and acting like they're on this treadmill. Father, I pray today you would help them to pack up the treadmill and chuck it away and decide instead that they will live anchored securely in your grace. And I pray, Lord, it wouldn't just be this morning, but it would be as as things crowd back into our lives this week, as we kind of go back to that old way of thinking, Lord, remind us constantly that we are saved by grace alone. Remind us of sola gratia. Keep us anchored in your grace, Lord Jesus. Keep us centered on the cross. Keep us looking to Jesus alone for our standing with you. It is in him that our salvation lies. It's in him that our relationship with you is found. It's nothing to do with us. Keep reminding us of this. Keep these truths fresh in our hearts. Keep us living in your grace, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.